0: This talk um, is advancing the idea that Moses was probably the greatest and most innovative social designer in human history. It's a a claim that might seem strange if we're used to looking at Moses from within the prism of uh, the Bible. In other words, we will look at Moses in religious terms and I argue that that religious framework really diminishes um, our sense of the scope of what he was doing and also the relevance because it tends to put Moses into the private religious box and he was not in the private religious box. The Bible doesn't present him in that way at all. He was the architect of a new nation and it wasn't just any nation, it was Israel and Israel was uh, not... Primarily a religious construct. Israel was a new kind of nation. It was a nation, a nation built around an ethos, an articulated ethos, and no other nation in history had ever been built around an ethos. They were really built around tradition and kings. And so there's an enormous amount that today we can learn by looking at Moses. And what we can learn about is how we might act in the public space, how we might want to shape the particular worlds in which we live and shape them out of faith and shape them towards hope. Uh, um, This talk is obviously just beginning the story of what we can learn from Moses. And in particular, looking at uh, what we what we might be able to learn from him, uh, his life and his work about how the landscape of hope can guide and shape our action in the public space. So I begin this talk, this this talk begins around three uh, large areas that we can learn Um, and the first one is that all design, all shaping, all public action comes from the inner life Um, In other words, if you don't actually have personal insight and passion, almost an internalised picture of what you want to create in the public space, then either you won't act at all in the public space, or if you do, it will be palpably seen as cosmetic. So the inner life is the first thing we can learn from Moses. Moses. The second thing we can learn from Moses is that all action, all action in the public space, particularly action that's coming out of the landscape of hope, the, the, the Judeo Christian landscape of hope, will be a combination of critiquing and building. Now, this is the point that Walter Brueggemann makes in his book on the prophetic imagination. I'd say that Brigham stronger on critiquing than building, and, and I really emphasise the fact here that all design and all shaping must mix them both. It's not good enough to be a critic. And too often, I think that the, the picture of a Christian ethos just leads us to be critics. Don't do this, don't do that. Um, almost like an an auditor of human behaviour. What we can learn from Moses is you've actually got to become an architect. You've got to to build and make something positive. So that's the second lesson. The third lesson is that all shaping in the public space comes out of a deep belief system and of the way the world works, and it is purpose driven. Now this is one of the great truths of great design that is that it, it's actually coming out of purpose. It's got a strong sense of mission. The, 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 the social constructs we make are not an end in themselves. They are serving some other end, some higher end. And in the case of Moses, it was the knowledge of God. And we explore that. So it's, um, putting, we're only putting our feet in the water in the talk. But I think they, it's, it's, it's enough to absorb, absorb in one talk. It'll, it'll, it'll get you thinking as it's got me thinking. And it'll it'll open up a whole new way of looking at Moses. Um, I think a whole much more relevant way of talking about the life of Moses. It's actually relevant. This talk is relevant to anybody who's designing social systems, whether they're a believer or not. So, um, so I commend it to you, and um, look forward to hearing uh, from people as to as to how it's talking to them. God bless you. So, um, Moses, the social architect, is what I've called this because this. For for, uh, for a few years, I have looked at Moses and read Deuteronomy almost like a management, well not almost, like a management consultant. My job is to design big, big systems, help people do that. And uh, so rather than looking at Deuteronomy and, and, and even Exodus, through a religious lens, it's kind of flicked over for me and I, I look at it as what it in fact is. It is, is an active, immense design of a, of a social system. That's what it is. So because of that, I think the life of Moses, in my view, is archetypal, probably the biggest example we have of um, a, a life of active design, informed by hope and a worldview, that we have in the Bible. So as, a, as as such, it seems to me to be, therefore, um, full of potential as to what we might learn about it. It's tricky because it's so big and complex, um, and I don't know that I completely effectively have, have um, managed to walk the right line between just delving into the theology of Moses rather than looking at him as an illustration of active life in the world, but... Um, uh, I, I, I think I've uh, I hope to share with you some broad themes tonight about design and um how it works in the world. Uh we, we ended last time with, with the diagram uh here of how um essentially hope is a landscape. It's a territory. It it, it really Um, recasts the topography upon which I live life and reality as uh, on the left-hand side originating in creation and ending in the culmination of God and reconstructed by the resurrection of Jesus. And so the bit in the middle is how I might now imagine my life in that world. Interestingly I Last time, to- when I gave the first message, I don't know if people can remember, I actually said I'd had a bad day. Do you remember that? Yep, it was a really bad day. I I, I, um, something interesting happened, you know. Uh, what happened was I... I mean, I'm the kind of... So, some people can just let um, failure and, or impediments just, just wash off them, like they don't worry about... I don't. I... I I I just wake up at night thinking about it. I might be, I don't know if anyone else is like that, but you just... No, no, no. no, no. Never failed, mate. Never failed. And so I did wake up, and um, somehow or other, I don't think I did it deliberately, I think the Holy Spirit really used this talk to me, which is to reinterpret the events of life as cycles of death and resurrection, somewhat mystically. And um, so in other words, I had been delivered into a, a, what I call a death experience. All that I mean is I think God does orchestrate situations where you've come to the end of your best efforts. Mm-hmm. And there's no sin involved in that necessarily. There might be. There wasn't in this case. It's just, you know, and that's humbling. And that's kind of good because now and this particular situation was well and truly out of my hands. Right. Well and truly out of my hands. But it was like the Holy Spirit said, pray for and expect a resurrection. And it was one of those, so sometimes in life, we actually can act and we should act and we can do things. This time I couldn't do anything. And um, so out of that bad situation, uh, a, a resurrection occurred. In other words, the situation was redeemed, retrieved, nothing to do with me, someone else, and the things got reoriented and it's, it's, it's actually going probably better than before because I'm not involved in it so I don't have to do the work. Um, anyway. That was really interesting because I, I actually don't think I'd ever really, it's a bit of a new thing for me to try and diagnose the cycles of life through the dying and rising of Jesus. And I think Paul does that quite a lot, but, but that was an interesting experience I had after that event. Um, but, but our broad theme, uh, obviously, in Gospel Conversations is that we're on the planet for much more than just evangelism. And unfortunately, when people talk about action in the world, that's what they go to. Um, and even though we all know evangelism and sharing the message is very important, but too often it's kind of framed within a platonic offer as an escape hatch. You know, your redemption's an escape hatch from the world. And within that framework, we're to believe in Christ as uh, the passport out of the world. That's what my salvation's done for me and into heaven. And that is a kind of a transcendence. The great offer is transcendence. Uh, So the traditional evangelical message runs the risk, even though it's very well-intentioned, as being embedded within a worldview that this earth is a mere passage to somewhere else. And if you, ha- if you think that, then it will innovate action in the world. Um, and action in the world beyond evangelism almost is meaningless. It becomes distorted and tainted Um, even though I could be zealous about it, um, it'll become probably some kind of importing of heaven to earth and establishing a Christian dictatorship. So it doesn't set us up to act in the world. Uh, What we've we've established is uh, hope, and the topography of hope is the place to start, as a prelude to even getting into action. Um, Therefore, we are making a major claim that a well-developed theology of hope, i.e. eschatology, is the antecedent to intelligent action in the world. I'll say it again. <laughs> you can tell I wrote this, can't you? Because it's, it's, they're long sentences. But it, uh, a well-developed theology of hope, right, is the antecedent or the foundation to intelligent Christian action in the world. Right. So, um, So let's kind of go back into hope for just for a little bit. What is hope? I mean, essentially, borrowing from what we read from Tom Wright, it's a worldview. It's a worldview. And it's a worldview that frames uh, creation as God's territory. And it reconceptualizes the earth in which we live. Can I just say something? I, I know I, I've kind of criticized evangelism. This is a far better message to talk to people about than you're a sinner and you died on the cross. I mean, we have to get there but I mean, just today I had a phenomenal conversation with the guy who actually drove the purchase of Second Road in Accenture. Within 30 seconds, bang, bang, bang um, you know, I, I just had mentioned as I do sometimes oh look, I'm religious and he said, look, I'm, I'm terribly sorry Tony, I, I realised when I heard you say that I said, oh Jesus and I apologise to you that's what he said <laughs> um He's one of the guys with the greatest integrity you could ever meet. And I said, oh, don't worry about it. I said, I actually don't like using the word religious. I, and, and I just quickly gave him a bit of Edwin on cosmology. He's actually born a Jew and, and creation. And, and, he, and he said, "Hey, so you don't believe in evolution? I said, look, evolution's a big word. I mean, do I believe rocks can evolve into people? No, you know. Um, do I believe something can come out of nothing? No. He said, no, well, neither do I. Uh, so, and then I, you know, gave him the story of monkey on typewriters and the probability of uh, Shakespeare's sonnets evolving in the 10 billion years of the universe. If every atom in the universe was a microprocessor, it only gets me up to about line eight of one sonnet. So, and he said, Wow. That's great. Let's, this is fantastic. So I, 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 what I'm saying is I think this world, the world is thirsty for the, this creational worldview. So because it's a view of reality. Um, so hope, in fact, is, a, is, a, is our view of all reality. Um, and in particular, the received reality of the cosmos. When I'm talking to a guy like Trevor, I, I reconceptualize religion as philosophy. I said it's about the meaning of life. That's what I'm talking about. Now, reality is an important word and it includes uh, critical elements like matter, the building blocks of the material world. It's matter, so we have to have a theory of matter. That's why Ron's talks I found so thrilling. Time, Time, the kind of tick-tock passage of events that marks our days, our years, our lives, our generation. That's part of the created order. Space and shape, uh, the sense of dimensions within which we live. And what ties all of these factors together is experience, which is the human walk through time and space and matter with all of its ups and downs. That's the territory. That's what I mean by the territory. And hope reframes this territory within which we live and our place within it and ourselves as the house of God. So, but in doing so, hope contrasts with other world views very sharply um, hope has competitors because the world is a competition. It's actually a, it's a battle to the death, to be honest with you. Um, uh, and hope actually contrasts first with despair and nihilism, which is really very much the threat of our age. You know, we can see it in many symptoms of depression, suicide, whatever. But nihilism is a really good way of, of, of naming that. And it, it contrasts with a nihilism that sees uh, the territory we live in as totally self defined. It, it has no meaning beyond itself. Uh, in order to maintain the view that reality is only physical, it, I'll say this in order, nihilism, in order to keep maintaining its story that reality is merely physical, it has to keep narrowing wonder and mystery. And it has to keep doing that. That's why I said what I said to Trevor. I mean, by the way, do the maths on Shakespeare's sonnets. That's what convinced uh, Anthony Flew. I mean, it's quite simple. The maths are quite simple if you do it. You just, don't, you just run out of seconds in the universe by line eight. It's called exponential, you know, whatever it is. It's maths. Um. LAUGHTER I've got the broad idea. Um, so nihilism, uh, and, and, and by the way, Kierkegaard said the same thing in, in a wonderful passage um, in his book, Sickness Under Death, just a phenomenal passage. I'll try and find it for you some other time. But his main reason for lack of faith was, I can't believe it. it's too good to be true. That's what he actually says. So nihilism has to strain out all the complexity and the soul The love, all the poetry of life, it's got to strain it out to fit inside its narrow thimble. Um, And when you combine nihilism with secularism and reason, what it does, in fact, is it implicitly positions the human mind as the final arbiter of all reality. If I don't understand it, it doesn't exist. If I can't explain it, it doesn't exist. And it demands that every aspect of creation be explicable, provable, demonstrable, as if the whole creation should only exist or be real if we can understand it. So that's the competing world of nihilism. There is another competing world on the other end of the spectrum, which is platonic transcendentalism, which is actually the opposite. But it leads us to another blocked space. Uh, This covers most religions in the world, and in particular platonically infected religions what transcendentalism does is it denigrates the physical order to second place at best, or even worse, to the lowest place or an evil place. So meaning uh, does exist, but not here, not in the here and now, never in the here and now. Uh, it's, It's somewhere else, and thus this world becomes a shadow of reality, not reality itself, which Plato caught in his famous image of the cave, which the prisoners in the cave could only see a shadow of reflected reality which was happening behind their backs. And we have charted in previous talks how this view infected Christianity, particularly since St. Augustine, who's a great guy in many ways, just got that one wrong. Um, Two insights come out of this contrast, I think, and they're quite relevant to us. And firstly, we can see there's a fundamental competition going on between worldviews which, as I've said, it's actually a battle to the death. This is a battle that has no winners in it, there's no compromise, and it has devastating effects on people's lives. So there isn't a middle ground between these alternate views. They're hostile to each other and they take us down very different roads. And um, hope is a code, our code, with a distinctive worldview that competes heavily with both nihilism uh, And with transcendentalism and and both worldviews end up denigrating the earth and action on the earth. Despite the opposition of these views their outcome is the same. Both of them make action in this world pretty meaningless and cosmetic. In fact both of them if you take them to extremes become utterly reckless with the world. It's a throwaway item I can do with it what I want. Uh, So Uh, transcendentalism constrains this recklessness to some extent because at least there's a higher order against which we are to be judged. Um, But this higher order has no particular prolonged interest in our world. Now the third way is the way of hope and the Gospel of Hope charts this third way because as we said it reframes the territory as the house of God. So what it does is it injects or baptises all the mess of life, everything I went through, matter, time, everything, with meaning. It invites us to find the meaning, which will be an endless task and a wonderfully endless task. And it's not just the meaning of redemption and salvation from sins, it's the meaning that will be revealed within this life. It invites us to view all of the creation as sacred and as the artwork of God. And it invites us to view all of the creation as having an end and a purpose. What this does is it places upon us the moral imperative of reform. That's what it does. If I now believe this is, the house, this is sacred, the moral imperative of my life will have to be reform. And, and given that we have this vision of possibility and potential, our job, and particularly Christians above all, is to shape and reform our world towards that end and from that vision. So does that lay it out? So what I want to do now is look at how this coalition between a massive worldview and action worked itself out in the life of Moses. So Moses is uh, unique. Um, He's an epic leader and pioneer in the Old Testament. Um, We can't just put him alongside the prophets as one of many or the patriarchs as one of several to whom God spoke. Although he fits there, he does more than that. Uh, He was the first human being to take the revelation of the Lord, Yahweh, and to design a social system out of that revelation. He transformed the new worldview of Yahweh into a totally unique social reality And it wasn't a minor social reality. It was a huge one. It was a nation. He designed a nation out of this vision of God. So that's why I'm so interested in him and why I think all of us can get a lot of guidance. We're not going to probably design a nation, but nonetheless, we can get a lot of guidance about our ambition to take our faith into public life and do things with it. Now... um, Am I up to? Yep. So, the question that, that really. What's this? Oops, I've got myself a bit confused here. Um, so, what I'm going to look at in, in, in the talk is the capabilities for design as evidenced in the life of Moses. And this is the question that I'm focusing everything on. What can we learn from his life? and work about how the landscape of hope guides, inspires, energises and shapes action in the public space? I think that's the right focusing question for us. So um, I am going to essentially give you that diagram. Um, It doesn't exhaust everything, but it says if I'm acting in the public space, uh, there are three... And these are three ways great designers design. Um, The first thing we'll talk about is the inner life, all great designers design out of the inner life. Um, There's an existential part to design. If you're a shallow person, you won't design anything. The second thing is we're all in different situations in life, what I call sandpits. So so really this applies to big, small, whatever. Design is contextual. It's always contextual. And um, all design is a combination of critiquing and building, which actually, is, that's what Brueggemann talks about in his book on Moses around, he calls it the prophetic imagination. Um, it'd be a better book if he knew more about design. Um, he's better on critique than he is on building. But this is a huge thing. This is a huge thing. I see so many well intentioned, frankly, Christians, and they're good on the critique side. Right? What's wrong with government? What's wrong with the asylum policy, what's wrong with this, what's wrong with that. Is, the, the issue is the moral imperative is to critique and then to build. Mm-hmm. And, and, you, and, and that's what I'm going to look at. And finally, all great design comes out of a noble purpose. That is absolutely true. So all of those things are true of any design, and I'm looking at them now in the life of Moses. So I'm going to go back to um, the inner life. It's a pretty simple point. Um, I'm, I, I wrote here, I don't want to labour it, and then I wrote two pages on it, so I think I've <laughs> laboured it. That's <laughs> like... Um, the, the point is that this, the vast system of principles and laws that Moses developed began in a personal encounter with this God. That's what the story tells us. Um, and it, this is emphasised in the narrative for, uh, of Exodus chapters 2 and 3, and we saw it absolutely there. Chapters 2 and 3 of Exodus tell us a simple but powerful point that all great action in the world must flow out of a deep personal inner life. Now, that is actually true of any great designer. You know, if you look at Steve Jobs, who was a great designer, he, he... he designed out of soul and beauty and mysticism that, that you might not agree with what he had, but he had a deep inner life. All great designers are like that. There's a sense of beauty and aesthetics that drives them. It's not a utilitarian thing. But for us, that can be connected with a deep connection with God in the, in the private realms of our mind and heart. Ironically, this doesn't mean that we become monks and retreat because what we see in the personal life of Moses was not retreat. And nor was it mere action. We see the conversation between action and reflection. I cannot overly stress this. This is my life. Between public activity and private revelation. Between his Jewish heritage, which made him a stranger. And his Egyptian education, which made him a citizen of the world. And I think we all walk in those two worlds if we want to act in the world. And by the way, that dilemma is not confined to Christians. There is a huge thirst to reconcile like active life of work with private life of reflection. So that that is not confined to us. I think it's probably might be more polarized with us or more attenuated. I think we have more resources to deal with it. So let's look at the action side. I mean, Moses was clearly very, very smart. There's absolutely no question this guy was a genius. He was extraordinarily educated in the ways of Egypt. Uh, which would have meant that even by today's standards he was a very sophisticated person. Um, This context was a part of forming who he was and clearly his princely status, his princely status equipped him with networks, gravitas, self-belief, information about the Egyptian world that in turn enabled him to know his audience and his tactics. So... Wherever God puts you, get good at it. It's actually inconceivable to me to imagine how Moses could have led this revolt if he had been the same person but was stuck in the Jewish slave quarters all his life instead of living in the courts of the palace. In the same way, I think we are invited to take our context and education and situation very seriously as providence, not an accident. And I wish... When I was a younger person, if people were mentoring me, they could have held me more accountable to my gifts and context. The family you're born in, the school you went to, the things you're good at doing. We're invited by our worldview to view them as providential, not accidents. So I think that creational action in this world does require some knowledge of the context that we live in, which equips us, equips us to engage with it and deconstruct us. But his Jewish heritage put him at loggerheads with the Egyptian world because he was a stranger and a pilgrim. So we see this in his killing of the Egyptian overlord in protection of his Jewish brothers. And the impression I get very much, to, reminds me enormously of Peter. Impetuous, a young man who acted impulsively but out of good intentions. Anyone ever been there? <laughs> Anyone ever regret anything you did in your early 20s? <laughs> early 50s. Early 50s. <laughs> So, um, and, and you know what, if you take a moral view, you say, oh, mistake, shouldn't have done it, wasn't it. No, no, this is life. Like, you know, he tried something, it didn't work, it was a mess, you know. <laughs> Oops. Um, so, uh, then on the other side, and that, we know that drove him into the desert and into contemplation, and so now we move to the uh, the revelation side of life. So... There's a, this kind of dialectic between his inner life and his context. Now, on the revelation side, Moses encountered God in the desert in an Abraham-like meeting that put him face to face with God. Uh, in the burning bush, he came face to face with the presence of God, the incarnate presence of God in the bush. And God's glory was anchored in nature, in the very ordinary parts of nature. That is a bush. I find this one of the most evocative passages in the Bible, given what we've just talked about. It was as if God was showing him the inherent glory of the whole created order. You just think how the burning bush was a complete um, smashing of either nihilism or transcendental. It was a burning bush. I mean, God wasn't in some great temple. He picked one of the most incidental parts of nature, but it flamed with glory. Um, and then God... Spoke with him in Exodus three, as a, uh, uh, and it wasn't just any conversation. It's what I like to call a first date conversation. Hi, who are you? What's your name? I'm not telling you. I am that I am. <laughs> um, and um, but and famously, God revealed Himself as totally self sufficient by refusing to attach any epithet to the verb to be. Um, I am not. I'm not going to name myself by any. Adjectival attribute because you just that, that'll, that'll miss who I am. And in this profound statement, uh, the Lord eclipsed all the idolatry and imagery of Egypt and revealed his eternally conclusive and complete nature. Um, this personal encounter happened at Horeb, where he later received the law, but this is the main point deep action in the world must always be counterbalanced by deep inquiry and revelation into the nature of God and you oscillate between the two and it's not just an intellectual encounter but a deep confrontation and relationship with him. I can remember my sweet mother who led me and taught me in all the ways of the Lord and of course I got older I she did that far less but as she saw my life a few years before she died and she just knew how How very, very active my life is. She just said, you know, whatever else, Tony, just please keep your private life with the Lord. Keep feeding that. Um, Because ironically, the more active and political the life, the more we need to feed our personal inner life so that we act uh, out of not not just devotion to God, but an ever expanding knowledge of God. Um, it's, in other words, you don't go into your inner life to retreat and lick your wounds, you go into your inner life to get a deeper knowledge of God that you've been pushed into by the context. Does that make sense? Yeah. Um, so uh, this this diagram, I think, captures that oscillation and the second diagram really captures the idea of a core and a contingency. You know, that I, keep, I meet the world on the core... Uh, sorry, I meet the world on the edges where I'm experimenting and um, engage with it, but that casts me back to a deeper core. So that's, uh, that's the first capability of design, is a deep inner life. So I'll just clip that side, slide because we've seen... The second one is critiquing and building. Um, this revelation made Moses... A prophet, not just a reformer or builder. Uh, And I mentioned Brueggemann sees, uh, defines a prophet in terms of the imagination. Uh, That is a prophet sees the potential, the meaning and the ethos behind actions and contexts. And this prophetic imagination had two outworkings, critiquing and building, we need them both. Now critique actually... um, is probably too thin a word on its own because it can be negative. Uh, Prophetic critique involves evaluation. When I critique anything, I am evaluating it against some standard. That's what's going on. Um, And Moses was evaluating Egypt and their gods against his burning bush experience. And he'd been transformed by his encounter with the eternal and all-powerful God. And he knew there were no competitor gods or sources of power. So he, at every turn, Moses critiqued idolatry and he competed against these gods in the miracles and criticised the gods throughout Deuteronomy. His vision of God meant that he would always be uncomfortable in this world and at odds with it. Throughout Deuteronomy, you can feel his scorn for the idiocy of making graven images of the Almighty But if he only critiqued, he would not be true to the landscape of hope. Prophets must become designers, actors, positive agents in the world. Uh, Criticism is the first phase of enthusiasm, but if we get stuck there, we aren't leaders and we aren't being true to the implications of hope. You can criticise if you don't believe this earth has a future and we're all going to heaven. But if you see the landscape of hope, you can't stop there. And that's what we see in the life of Moses. The majority of his work and writings was to shape a new society based on this vision. Actually reminds me of a situation in West Papua. I spoke to one of my friends there, a very wise woman, and she was talking about the independence movement, which is deep in the heart of West Papuans understandably, and she just talked about the passion of protest marches and some of the ones that she'd been invited to attend. And whilst, in a way, that was her heart, what she said is, well, so what do we do the day after? What do we do the day after? We'd have to build a country. And if we're pragmatic, we probably can't do that that well. So there's this, the point about building It always involves compromise. You can critique out of perfectionism and purism. The minute you move to build, you must compromise. That is one of the great principles of design. I know of no design that doesn't involve heavy compromise. And therefore, you'll be criticised because it wasn't good enough. Now, let's be a little bit... um, Precise, we actually don't see Moses building anything. It's very important. Uh, We actually just see him designing because he never got to build. And this is important because all building begins in the mind with thought um, as to how a vision might work in practice. And that's what Moses actually did. And we have the record of his design. It's like a blueprint. Right. Uh, That's all we've got at length. Uh, This is the obligation and consequence of a theology of hope. We have to work out and design how this might work in the world and in the context in which we inhabit. But we will always be confronted with what Moses faced, which were gaps, the gaps of design, the tensions of design. Because I have to design out of the materials of creation. So our designs will always be a compromise of some sort and see unequal to the vision. This is really important because perfectionism kills action. It is just so true. Perfectionism is the death of action in the world. And it seems that God doesn't want perfectionism. What he wants is to translate our vision into echoes of that vision. Right? I'll say that again. We just, Our job is to translate that vision into echoes of the vision. We, we're not going to get the vision, but we can get echoes of it. The reality of God's character is perhaps perfected and it's stable in heaven, but God isn't satisfied with that isolation. God wants himself translated into a context that's full of time and weariness and matter and humans. Um, and that translation is always context dependent. So... That's the first gap I want to talk about, which I live with all the time. The minute you act in the world, uh, you've got to get a a degree of pragmatism. Um, The second gap is uh, the gap between design and building, which is that I'm really saying the same thing again here. I don't know if it's that much of a second gap, but he never, the point about Moses, we know that Moses never got to first base on anything he wrote in Deuteronomy. He didn't go into the land, and most of what he wrote in Deuteronomy was was simply uh, never fulfilled. Uh, The Jews proved pretty well incapable of doing much of it, as far as we can work it out. So we could look at it with extreme cynicism, and that's one of the things that we always struggle with, with public action in the world, because the more idealistic you are, the less likely it is it's going to come true. And, And... that battle between idealism and pragmatism is deep in the heart of every idealist reformer. It's a really, really tough one. And you've got to be reconciled to it. Now, the way that I personally am reconciled to it is this little diagram here that says, whilst I might be critiquing and building in the world, I'm looking at a future hope where these things will be fully realised. And I might only be plugging a bit of that into my present action, but but the long-term consequences of what I do, who knows what they will be. Um, And uh, in the case of Moses, we we know exactly what happened, which is the whole world, way beyond he could ever conceive, has been debated, defined, shaped by the Ten Commandments. Far more, far more than even if they'd have gone ahead and built a nation. It's become the foundation for society. I don't think, and that's without going into... You know the new heaven and the new earth. We already can see the profound. So I think we can say, because of this diagram, because of the theology of hope, little things we do will reverberate even in this world beyond our expectations. So we might be personally disappointed with something, but who knows where the reverberations will go? Does that make sense? Um, so, um, so that's the psychology of designing and building. Sorry, critiquing and building. Uh, the third area... Oh, I won't go into that diagram. The third area is that all design comes out of a noble purpose. Absolutely true that uh, all great design begins with purpose and it keeps going back to purpose to solve all of its problems. Design begins... Great design begins with why not how. That is among the most profound things I could share with you tonight. Great design begins with why, not how. Uh, but what happens, for whatever reason, is there is a natural gravitational pull of most people to dip down into the hows, the hows of work practices, rules, details, and they forget the reason they're doing anything. Um, we of all people, Christians of all people, should be people of the why, the telos. I was deeply reminded of this last night when our new friends um, in our host company were telling stories of the big projects they were doing. Massive projects, like some of them, $100 million projects. But they were big hows, you know, cutting, uh, improving procurement and cutting supply costs by 10%. That's a big, big how. And uh, then one of my colleagues was talking about a relatively smaller project he's doing in terms of, a lot smaller, in terms of money, which is uh, the biggest social welfare department in a country, I won't mention which it is, um, is being split in two And in order to work out how to do it, they've got to existentially go back to what's our purpose? Why are we on this earth? Why are we blessing this country? Big why. That's great design. Um, Now, in Moses' case, right, if we say the law was his social design, what's the why? What's the why behind the law? Because the Ten Commandments are famous, what everyone goes for, but what's the why? The why is extremely explicit, which is to spread the knowledge of God. Um, and that, uh, that's why these verses are so important. And these are in the chapter prior to the Ten Commandments. See, I've, he said to the people, look, I've taught you the statutes and rules as, as the Lord my God commanded me, that you should do them. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples, who when they hear all these statutes, they'll say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. There's never been wisdom and understanding like these people have. For what great nation is there that has a God so near to it? as the Lord our God is to us, whenever we call upon him. And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? God was revealing himself as near, not just near, but understood. Um, and that was the, in this chapter, this, uh, and, and others, I'd invite you to read around chapter four to see this idea of knowledge. So the ancient Near Eastern context into which this design came, we all know, was massively full of darkness. Humanity did not know God. They had reduced the knowledge of God to shadows of reality and to idols. Nobody on the planet knew this God. That's what the the history tells us. But we know that God loved the planet and the people on it, and his aim was to communicate himself to them. Knowledge is not theoretical and academic. It is a self, it is communication. He wanted relationship with us and he had to introduce himself to us. So the law was not an arbitrary set of rules that we have to obey. And um, unfortunately uh, people really there's this concept about the law that it's bigger than God. No one says that but everyone kind of that's what, so this is the picture people have in their mind that God is God because he obeys the law. That's why he's God. I mean, he doesn't make mistakes. If he did, he might be out of there. Um, and so there's, there's this assumption that somehow the law is sacrosanct and written in heaven. And, um, you know, our phrase is nobody is above the law, you know. And so we kind of, well, God must also himself not be above the law and that qualifies him to be a God. God. But in fact, he is above the law. The law is a means to an end, to reveal his character. So that's the first point about this design. I think its mission was to reveal the knowledge of God. Does that make sense for people? Um, so I'm going to just move on now to finish, and this will be it's my second last point, but it's, um, it doesn't mean it's not a short, uh, that shorter one. I'm trying to shorten it, but sorry. <laughs> um, this really got to me, this bit. This is very, very interesting to me. Um, that the emphasis on the knowledge of God was not just an exhortational emphasis. What we see is that God wants to explain himself to us in some detail. He actually wants to explain himself to us in some detail. Uh, God actually wants us to understand him and his workings and be able to communicate them we have minds, which is the gift of God. So, and it's part of the image of God within us that we can, we can grow in the knowledge of God. Um, you know, as a younger Christian, I was afflicted with the idea of obedience being a set of rules. And I think one of the great books, it's a great title of a great book. I don't know if the book's that great, but the idea is good. Um, John Frames, which is the, the doctrine of the knowledge of God. The, the end, God wants us to know him. And understand him. Um, And what this means about our our action in the world is that all great action in the world must communicate and tell a story. So there's got to be a story behind our action. And what that means is every public action in the world, in fact, is a piece of communication. Like a building is a piece of communication. Um, An act we do symbolises, people get the symbolism behind acts. You know, I I just watched a short interaction between two people earlier this week, one very powerful person, one not so powerful, and it was just something in the tone of voice that made me edgy. And then later I was told how fearsome amongst everybody this more senior person was. But you sort of... The words that passed were just a transactional... You know, sentence by sentence, it was just a transactional thing. There was... A story behind the way the words were framed. So that's what design does. It, our actions tell some story. Um, and this is really apparent uh, in in the words that are the prelude to the Ten Commandments. Um, the the story that's told, which begins in continuing in, in Deuteronomy, which is uh, chapter four. And 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 this is. Really, really, um, an important transition between uh, the mission of the knowledge of God and the ten words. Watch yourselves very carefully. This is the thing that, by the way, about Deuteronomy, it's always struck me that Rick, you'd know this better than I. I just can't imagine. I mean, there's so much in it about the inner experience and the love and the devotion. You know, it's about the heart. It's quite extraordinary. I don't know that. It's in other religious texts. It must be very strange to me, very unique. Watch yourselves. Since you saw no form on the day that the Lord spoke to you at Horeb, beware lest you act corruptly by making a carved image for yourselves in the form of any figure, the likeness of male or female, the likeness of any animal on the earth, the likeness of a winged bird that flies in the air, the likeness of anything that creeps on the ground, the likeness... Likeness, likeness, likeness. Remember, he said, I am that I am. No adjectives here, guys. And beware lest you raise your eyes to heaven. When you see the sun and the moon and the stars, uh, all that should be the host of heaven. Because when you raise your eyes to heaven, you get overawed. And you think you're small, don't you? So beware with you kind of go down, go up, raise your eyes to heaven. You see the sun, see the moon, see the host. You be drawn away and bowed down to them. Isn't that interesting? You know, I. we have exactly the same temptation, once I continue, which is to think we're insignificant. You know, and you'll bow down to them and subordinate yourself to them. They are things the Lord your God has allotted to all the peoples under the whole... They're your gift. You're ruling them. That's what he's saying. It's a fantastic passage, isn't it? So that's the passage that introduces the 10... We've got to say words, by the way, because they're not commandments. The, as Ian and John Walton have taught us, the Hebrew word for commandment, it's words. We'd be better off to call them something like principles. That might be getting closer to how we might use them, the 10 principles. Um, this, this prelude, which I think is breathtaking to the 10 words, it sets out a new relationship with, between God and mankind. Uh, That one that hadn't been suspected or conceived in the ancient Near Eastern religions or thinking. Because the, the words are not offered as arbitrary, but they come out of a context of God meeting the Jews. And Moses is distinguishing the pioneering nature of that meeting. When he met God, it inaugurated an entirely new understanding of God on the world. I want to actually draw attention, however, to one really evocative part about this whole passage, which really stunned me. It's very simple. I think it's very profound. Um, Moses emphasizes that God did not present himself in any form or image, and if he had, it would have constrained their conception of God to anthropomorphism and the created, created order. God would have been an extension of, of, of uh, them. They would have uh, an image, any image, would have projected God onto their limited views. Um, our, our eyes, imagery, our, our eyes respond extremely powerfully to the visual shape of creation. But form never reveals meaning. Images reveal the aesthetics of creation, but they do not reveal the origin or story behind creation. Instead, God spoke. We now have a contrast between word and image. They heard a voice. And the voice wasn't just a sound, it was articulated language. It was the sound of God speaking. And any act of speaking is an act of self-revealing and self-giving. When we speak, we're really pouring out our souls. Out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth speaks. I mean, just think about it. Our words are coming out of something deep within us and it's a self-giving and a self-explaining. Uh, and that speaking was incredibly purposeful, detailed, and ex- explanatory. So, God was very much not. It, there's an extension to this which I won't go into now, but I really worry extensively about the social media world we have, um, it's full of imagery. And images, their sensory power have an enormous seductive effect on the mind not to think, and that, but they stick for a long, long time. Imagery is extremely powerful and extremely limited. And we're getting a world more and more crowded by imagery, but not by connected prose that will, you know, lay out a reasoned argument for anything. I just don't think it's good. Um, I think, it, I think the cumulative effect of it is it brutalises mankind. We turn into brutes, we start. Um, yeah, I think it's lazy. It's, a, it's incredible laziness. Whereas this knowledge of God thing is I want you to kind of understand me. I'm speaking, it'll take effort, but you'll really understand the mechanics. I think it's, it's very lazy. Um, so uh, let's just kind of move on to the 10... Laws. This is this is a really important point I'm about to make. I think this concept of look. I'm speaking. I don't want imagery because I want you to know who I am. I'm not like kind of gods. I'm in the. I'm I'm absolutely eternal. Right. That's the idea. So that then leads straight into the um, the commandments. That was the voice and words and forms. I think the Ten Commandments, we could almost call it the Constitution of Israel. Perhaps I'm just playing with it here. Um, A Constitution sets out the rationale for the society and the the core beliefs. Uh, In a way, the Constitution governs the detailed laws. if you can prove those detailed laws contradict the Constitution, then they're not legal anymore. We watched that happen. That's America's fight at the moment between Trump and the law courts. The law courts are saying, you can't do that. It contradicts the, and the Constitution has got beliefs in it, like you cannot, they're 10 Commandment type beliefs, really. It's a principle that you simply cannot exclude people on the grounds of religion. If we believe that, then you can't make a law that says I do it. I think the 10 words are like the Constitution. They're like very big principles um, but we see that they're coming from somewhere now the first here they are you shall have no other gods before me you shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that's in the heaven above on the earth beneath or that's on the water under the earth you shall not bow down to them or serve them we, we saw why he didn't want us to do that in the previous section But I think they've been actually radically misunderstood. This point might seem a small one, but I I don't think it is. And I think it comes from a, the, The misunderstanding is the second commandment in my life has been regularly used to tell me not to have idols in my life. Anyone ever heard that? Where are the idols in your heart? You shall have no other gods. could be your car, your house, your wife, your job. Have you got any idols in your heart that you're putting before God? I actually think that's completely wrong. Okay, And the reason is that, that um, it flows from a misunderstanding of the first word when it says, you shall have no other gods before me. And John Walton makes the point the word before is not priority, as in I'm first and everything else is second and below. That's how we read it. It doesn't mean... It's more, there are no, it's kind of, there are no gods in my presence, in the spa- it's a spatial thing. In my courts, there are no other gods. So, you shall not conceive of any god apart from me. That's what it means. It's kind of like, doesn't exactly mean don't be an atheist, but it's just like, I'm the only, I'm the only being that qualifies for the word God. I'm not, I'm not the first amongst many equals. So, it's not about priority. And once you get that out of your mind in the first one, you go into the second one, then you don't take the idea of priority into the second one. Because if you take the idea of priority into the second one, then you're saying, well, God doesn't want me to have idols either. I can't have anything above God um, that, that I prefer to God. Whereas I think what he's actually saying um, in the in the second law is uh, that if we make images in a uh, w- w- we not only subordinate God, but mankind. Um, we shouldn't have moon gods, sun gods, astrologies. We actually need to know how the the great relationships in the universe are God and us. You know, there's nothing that we should be subordinating to that. So, in a way, that second uh, commandment is a massive exhortation to to get continue to get pictures of the power and exclusiveness of God and the unique relationship of mankind to him. And what Moses is saying is that all of creation are gifts to mankind and God has allotted them to all peoples of the world. So um, that's where I'm going to stop because we've been around those three areas. Um, It's I think a great example of how, just to recap, this incredible man designed, I mean, what we know to be a massive social system. We know there's much, much more to it. And next time around, I'm going to talk about the Sabbath and other things. But when I look at his life and I know how great designers and actors in the world act, I really think it exemplifies those, those three areas that there's the inner life. We just, no matter where, where we are, who we are, that we just keep developing the inner life, that, there's, that all action in the world is a compromise between criticism and building. And finally, that all great action in the world has got a mission and a purpose, including ours, small actions, and that purpose is to... Um, I think the purpose Moses had, was, which was that those um, actions were to spread knowledge and communicate are actually true of almost any public action in the world. Cool. I think that's it. I just say, just about not making of God, so that's not the It's just it's, yes. that's, all, that's, that's the golden calf. That, that, that's the golden calf. They're trying to picture God. I mean it just sort of seems to me to be really emphasizing the, the I mean, knowing God is not a trivial thing. It's easy to get it wrong, you know, and uh, and, to bring him down to our size. and to bring him down to our size. And this, I just think it's a phenomenal irony that Moses' capture, which is everywhere, which is, if we do that, we'll also subordinate ourselves because we're in the image of God. It's very ironic that, to be honest, if we have a big, a big picture of God, we'll have an equally big, bigger picture of humanity. Yeah, we're creating competitors for ourselves. If we do that. We're creating competitors for ourselves. That's a really good way to put it. Yeah.